0: Hey, it's Madison the Black Eagle, and here's a highlight from today's show.
1: Joe Madison, why did you call the book Radioactive?
0: Well, <clears throat> because the... the um,
1: This new air cooler is 98.7% cheaper, but 10x more effective. If you're tired of hot and stuffy rooms or high AC... The, the, the platform... Ben um, Hooks for six years... As the political director of that organization, Joe Madison has been hosting a radio talk show for over 40 years. He's known by his listeners as the Black Eagle and can be heard daily on Sirius XM radio. A native of Dayton, Ohio, and a graduate of Washington University in St. Louis, Mr. Madison started his professional life as an activist activist. One of his first jobs was working for the NAACP and President Ben Hooks for six years as the political director of that organization. Joe Madison angered both allies and adversaries when he organized a boycott against Dearborn, Michigan, when that city prohibited non-residents, including African Americans from Detroit, from visiting its public parks. This story and many others are included in his memoir titled Radioactive. Joe Madison, why did you call the book Radioactive?
0: Well, <clears throat> because the, the, um, the, the, the platform uh, of talk radio uh, was so much a part of my activism.
1: Why people are choosing this $99 drone over established drone brands. There's a tiny U.S. drone company that made a ground.
0: Uh, so I would use uh, my my talk radio platform uh, to uh, augment my activism, and so that's why in in the book uh, there are different um, different things I was involved in, like freeing slaves in South Sudan, uh, taking on the uh, I'm laughing only because taking on the CIA over the whole crack cocaine issues, you know, you you know, we go a long way back. So you remember all of this. Gary and, w- Gary Webb. And and Gary that's right, Gary Webb, because it was that story uh in the San Jose Mercury News that I had read. And uh some one of my callers brought it to my attention. Um I immediately um got in touch with Gary Webb and I said well we've got to do something about this I immediately got in touch with Dick Gregory and he you know Dick Gregory said he was out of town and he said don't don't say anything don't do anything I'm coming back to DC and we'll get on this and um I was able to use my uh, talk show uh as a platform to bring the, the uh, this issue Gary Webb's story to the attention of uh the country
1: people want to hear you today where do they go how long are you on
0: uh well f- four hours uh, s- s- uh 6 a.m east to 10 a.m sirius xm and it's the what we call the urban view channel and um uh, uh, and that's that's where we are and then who and then of course they replay it and then and now, I'm trying to figure out all this because I'm just old school. Now they we do we have to do a podcast, uh, and all they what they do they just take excerpts from the show and turn it into a podcast. I've got a pretty smart crew of people, young people who know how to do that. Where were you born? Dayton, Ohio.
1: How long did you live there?
0: Uh, from well, I lived. I was born there, reared there, left in, uh, to go to college started off at Wisconsin State University uh went there to actually to play football um, got kicked off the team cuz I was involved in student activities for uh for black students are trying to get uh african american uh curriculum and uh, and the uh and, and but I was I was there and actually I write about it as captain of an undefeated uh football team, thinking that my freshman year, getting ready to go back to play varsity the next uh, year. got What, a, what position? Uh, at the time, I was a middle linebacker. Uh, and um, uh, I got a letter from the f- varsity football coach, middle of summer, uh, and I mean, he put this in writing, do not report to a camp. We don't want you. And matter of fact, we don't want your kind and uh and my whole i mean it was like i i my it was like my whole life just stopped because uh, this was my out uh this was wh- how I got to college didn't know what to do uh uh spent a year uh working uh actually in a factory in, outside of dayton um and then my high school football coach got a call from a coach at a school I hadn't even heard of, Washington University in St. Louis. And uh, they were rebuilding their team and and uh, we had heard what had happened, and we we want we'd like to recruit you to come up here what
1: did What did that earlier coach mean by
0: your kind? Oh, uh, see, you got to realize this was 68, so a lot of uh, African-American students all over the country were, were, were trying to get uh, African-American history and professors hired. There was a, you know, and, and I bet you C-SPAN has it somewhere in their archives. What was it, the Wyoming 16, I think they called it? These are African-American football players. A Division One that were playing for Wyoming, same situation on campus. Black students wanted curric- uh, African American history curriculum professors. They, the ball players, because they were high profile, were asked to uh, join the the movement, to j- join the student movement, and they 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 had agreed that they would wear black armbands, and. Um, and the coach called them all in. This is a fascinating story. Called them all in, and not inside, in, out in the stadium. Had all 16 of them sitting in the stadium. And told them that if they wore those armbands, that they would be kicked off the team. And he kicked all 16 of them off the team. And this was going on all over uh, the uh, the country. And that's what that coach uh, that's what that my coach then at the time. That's what he meant. Uh, I don't. I don't want. I don't want my my ball players, especially my black ball player, involved in this student movement. I mean, he clearly was obviously a, He just very conservative. And you got to remember, this was Dr. King had been killed. I mean, had at that point, no, he hadn't been killed. But the civil rights movement was. In, in, its, in its heyday. And, uh, but I ended up at Washington University and um, ended, up, ended up being captain of that team, ended up my senior year with a championship, uh, and uh, got one of the best educations that I would never have been able to afford if it had not been for that coach and my high school coach that college coach and that university, uh, you know, uh, reaching out. I and I literally say in the book, and and the university, the, some of the folks at the university don't quite get it. But I literally said they saved my life, because I probably I I don't even know what I would have done. I really didn't know what I was. I I, I thought I had really messed up.
1: Back to Dayton.
0: Yeah, your parents. What were they like? Well, now this is going. <laughs> you know the story. I was reared by grandparents, and I write in the book how, and I only know this story through my what my grandmother told me was that uh, my grandfather showed up at the at the house. I was two years old, as she told told, told the story. My sister was one, and my mother was not there, and had abandoned us. And my grandfather came in, found me, and, and my sister, and in essence became our legal guardian. So my grandfather and grandmother reared me uh, from till I till I actually, uh, uh, you know, graduated from uh, from high school. Um, as the uh, now, I wasn't estranged from my mother. I mean, she would show up every now and you know. Then I'd go live with her, and of all places, in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, uh, and and my father, Felix Madison, uh, he lived in Flint, Michigan, and he worked in the Buick plant, uh, foundry in the Buick plant. And uh, I'd go up to Flint some summers and. And stay with him, um, but but the the grandparents were in essence the people who reared me, uh, and I bring and then of course as you know uh, our good friend Professor Skip Gates uh, came to me and said we want to do your family tree for our PBS ser- uh, segment and uh, finding your roots, and I said sure, and it. It just kept, it took so long, Brian. I mean, it was like, because I, 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 he used to hide from me when he'd see me in the in train station when we, were commuting, when we were going back and forth to New York because he knew I would ask him, well, when are we going to get this done? And so finally, I get this call from uh, Skip. It was a Saturday morning. He said, uh, Joe, we're, we're finally finished. It's been 5 years, I know, but we're finally finished. But uh I have to uh I have to ask I've got good news and bad news. And I said okay, I uh what's the uh the good news was we're finished. The bad news is your Felix Madison is not your biological father. And I, you know, I hesitated, I said, what? Now, again, this is just, what, a couple of years ago. I mean, I'm in the middle of writing the book. I'm writing the book. We're about ready to close it out. He's not your biological father. I said, what are you talking about? He said, no, he's not. Well, how do you know that? Well, not only isn't he your biological father, but you've got two half-brothers. One of them lives in Los Angeles, where my wife and I, are. she's from Los Angeles found out he lived uh, not too far from where my wife lived. And, um, and so this was around, this was t- 2000 after. I said, is he still alive? No, he has he, uh, he passed away. Is the half brother, yeah, the half brother is there. And what about the other half brother? Well, the other half brother, Brian, uh, grew up with you in Dayton, Ohio. You guys went, he said, you, uh, I found this out later. Uh, he, he is the middle brother. I'm the oldest. The L.A. brother is the youngest. And you guys, we found out we went to the same elementary school. We went to the same high school. We had the same running buddies in Dayton. He knew of me because I played ball. You know, I had a little rep. And he said, "Oh yeah, we 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 knew Joe Madison, da da da. Never knew we we were related. Um, and and so it, it 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 wasn't. You know, I'm going wow. So I I mean, so uh, so they brought us together. PBS brought us together. Brought the three brothers to, together for the first time just a, a few years ago." and uh it and again it was like man it's like he was ha- the younger brother was happy cuz he thought he was the only son and the uh, middle kid uh, the middle brother um uh, he was really thrilled cuz he wanted brothers and it was it was, during the taping we ended up spending more time talking about the guys we ran in the street with than we talked about the father uh they uh the younger brother uh Kip is from Los Angeles. He knew the father. I never knew him. I never and there's a photograph of him in the book. And uh 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 and and the middle uh, brother uh he knew him. He knew him, but didn't know he was his father. Didn't know he was his father.
1: Where did you decide or learn
0: to be an activist? That stu- well, obviously when I got when I was at uh at West State Right I mean then. that no, was it. Oh, yeah. that cuz cuz again uh you know the the, the you, you got caught up in it I mean cuz there only had 100 plus African Americans on campus so you 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 got caught up in it and um uh and so you know I just that's where it really it really started um then while I was a freshman Soft, you know, I went. I had to go back to Wisconsin to get my grades up to transfer to Washington U. I was not a very good student my freshman year, um, and uh, and Washington U said, "Well, if you can get your grades up, we can get you here. We can get you a scholarship. We can get you this and get you that." And um, in the process, I met Julian Bond. Um, actually, had a cha- in nineteen. 19- when he was nominated to be what was it vice president mm-hmm. i think yeah he he was on a speaking tour in 68 yeah t- 1968 he was on a speaking tour and i was asked to introduce him at the on the campus and we became just a lifelong friendship at that at that moment matter of fact uh, julian uh, i introduced him and um my first time meeting, can you imagine, here you are, a sophomore, you're all of 19, and you meet Julian Bond. And then uh, Julian said, well, I'm on a speaking tour for, was it, uh, uh, at the time he was he uh, the anti-war candidate, he he was campaigning for him. And, and...
1: Um, was he campaigning for McGovern?
0: No. No. Or- no, not him? McGovern. Uh, oh
1: God, McCarthy. And,
0: yes, yes. Jim McCarthy. Yes, mm-hmm. and he said, "I'm on a speaking tour here in Wisconsin. I've got four or five s- speeches at these different state colleges. How'd you like to fly with me? I mean, they've got a private plane. I'm flying around." And I said, "Yeah, I got to get permission to, to get out of class. I would have gone anyway, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, they gave me permission to go." And he and I spent two, three days. Uh, my one experience with Julian Bond was after he gave a speech at at, at the school, um, a, a friend of mine loaned me his Corvette to drive Julian Bond to the Playboy Club in Lake George. And, uh, and I had forgotten gotten that. And it was just, just uh, a year ago, that young man, we were, we were in school together. He said, you know, I loaned you my Corvette to drive Julian up to the Playboy Club. I said, no, I don't remember that. And he sent me a photograph of the the Corvette. And then, and then there, and then there was Claude Brown. There was the, the, the book Man Child in the Promised Land. He came to campus and, uh, he stayed in my dormitory room with me. And we stayed up all night talking all night long. Um, and, and so that's how it, and then, of course, King was assassinated. And, and then I, you know, so, so then it just, and then that's, that's, where, that's where it really started. What do black people
1: say to one another when there are no white people around?
0: I I don't know. I'd like to ask white people what they say to each other when there are no black folk around. I mean, that's you know no one has ever asked me that question. I I you know what do we say? I mean, it's a, such an open-ended question. What do we say? We talk about our families, our funerals. I mean, if if you if you put a a parenthesis around it, what when we're talking about civil rights, uh when we're talking about uh how crazy! I mean, this day and age. I'll be honest with you, and, and it's and and black folk aren't even worried about whether white folks are around now. Uh, that I mean, I can tell you from my show, they think the, they think these these uh, Trumpers and and mega folks, they're crazy. They think they're crazy. Um, they, and, and I got to tell you, I don't care, and I know people who, in all walks of life, Martin, I know folks who have no Ds behind their names, and I know doctors and PhDs, people in all walks of life. I've interviewed the President of the United States. I know members of Congress. And I can tell you, without fear of contradiction, that no matter who they are, whenever there's a conversation the the phrase that comes up is some white folks and this is not generalizing they're crazy they're going crazy what the hell is wrong with them what what's going on and and that's what the, what they say but it's, it's but once again that's in the open that's in 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 the uh, open there is no uh there's really no fear like it was when we were coming up there's no fear people speak their minds, but you know I think in large part because we have shows like the one I do you know i i i mean i'm I've got about six million listeners, and they pick up that phone and they will they don't care who's listening
1: in the history of media yeah where do you fit for black audiences? How important is your radio show, and how many were there before you started your radio show where you had a a black host.
0: Yeah, let me tell you. Um, I was there was always when when talk radios first started, uh, or like, there's always been talk radio, but as the format we know now, uh, there were always one black host, one black host, um, and. Um, uh, like when i f- when i first got into the business i was ex- i was the uh, i was working for the nacp living in detroit um what were
1: you doing for them
0: i was i started off young 24 year old executive director of the detroit branch 10,000 members largest branch in the in the history, in, uh, in the associ- association uh then uh after 3 years there uh, I I ended up uh, uh, Ben Hooks came on as the CEO, and he recruited me to be the political director. Uh, the way I got started in talk radio was there was one black host who was on weekends. <laughs> you know, I think he did a Sunday show. He was leaving, and and I had always I had been a guest uh, because of, of the NACP work, right? And uh, the program director. Michael Packer was his name, uh, came to me and said, how would you like to uh, take his place and do uh, a talk show? It's weekends. Uh, you don't get paid hardly anything. I mean, well, probably $50 an a, a, a hour, or a, segment or a segment or whatever show. And uh, I said, sure. But, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll go to broadcasting school. Remember in those days they had broadcasting
1: school? Columbia
0: Broadcasting that School. That was one. And then there was another one. And he <laughs> said, hell no, 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 no. We'll teach you everything you need to know. Because if you go to that broadcasting school, we're going to have to undo everything they taught you. <laughs> and that's what he said to me. And, and so it was really a baptism of fire. So I just got in and... And uh, there was a um, there was a conservative libertarian talk personality who sort of took me under his wings, uh, and we we probably politically couldn't been we were miles apart, but we were friends. And he taught me what was known as formatics. This is how you do. This is how you go in and out. This is how you. Um, and then there was Larry King. Who I would usually go on his show because of my activism. And uh, Larry King taught me a lesson I live to, the, I, I, I practice to this day, and you do it too. Um, he always says, he always said, the best question, the next, the best question is always based on the last answer. And I always, because I would go in like a lot of people have a prepared list. He said, no, it's based on the last answer. And that's how I got in it. So then, so I did that for 10 years. Uh, at WX, it started out, the famous WXYZ. Detroit. Detroit. Remember, that was the station sure. of super, super sales.
1: WJR is another one. Oh,
0: yeah, that was WJR. <laughs> they were they, they they didn't have a single black person. Um. Can, again, can you imagine having a station, a talk station in Detroit, not having one single? And maybe they had a weekend person. Maybe. I don't remember. And then it became WXYT. I finally got my first full-time uh, break, my gig, at WWDB, FM, in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Yeah. Because um, their only black, Who and he and I became very good friends, he was leaving. And uh, and so they recruited me to come to Philadelphia, uh, to and I did. Midnight to five thirty in the morning. And so I'm. I, it was like first. So the, within the first ninety days, I'm called in to the owners. And I write about this in the book. In the now I haven't. I moved my family from Detroit, where I had a really solid political base, and and uh, so this was a gamble. Kids out of school. Wife had to change her job, and I get called into the general manager's and owner's office and told, "Well, you are talking about black folk too much. We're getting letters. This is before tweets." Social media, and so we'd rather you not spend so much time talking about black people. And I'm the only black person in the lineup. And now I'm still very I'm still very much an activist because I, you know, I, I we haven't talked about in Detroit with Dearborn and Rosa Parks and all that. So these folks knew who I, knew who I was. They knew me. And I was just pissed. So I decided, okay, you know, screw y'all. And I arranged an interview with my good friend, Ron Brown, who was uh, at that time running to be the first African-American chairman of the DNC. And I had known him from his days with the Urban League. We were young activists together. So I'd interviewed him one hour, and then to real, and then the next hour, I interviewed Louis Farrakhan. I don't think twenty-four hours went by, and I was called in the office and fired. Now they didn't fire me because I, <laughs> and the reason I interviewed the two of them, I wanted to show the dichotomy. They, I mean, here was Ron Brown, and then here was this Louis Farrakhan. Now, remember, this was after MOVE. This was after the, you know Philadelphia, Philadelphia where yeah. the entire neighborhood yep. was burned down. And, uh, but their excuse was, uh, you, we know you've been going on weekends back to Detroit to do your weekend show on WXYT. And we want you to stay in Philadelphia on weekends I, to get to know the city. And I said, "But it's weekends. It's my time." Well, it's a conflict of interest. The signals don't even cross. One is in Detroit. And the other is in. They don't. These folks don't even know that the, the stations exist. And that was the excuse they gave. And they fired me. So for a year, I, I did. I had no job. I was. I was not. I was not working. And I would end up going to. I would audition. For different stations. Now, remember, there was no Urban View. There was no and, on, on Sirius XM. Oh, there was no yeah. Sirius. There was no satellite right. radio. So I'm going pretty much to conservative, right wing stations, and usually uh, it was because they were looking for a black. But they'd always, it always, you know, and so I'd be in Cincinnati and I'd go there and and that. It worked out because I did a—Geraldo Rivera had a show on ABC. It was a talk show. And I was invited to uh, be on his show to talk about talk radio. And um, it got into a discussion about WABC. WABC didn't have a single black person—this is New York now—on their airwaves, in their lineup. And in the audience was the program director for WWRC, Ken Milgren. And he was in the audience. And he uh after the show, he contacted me and said, Well, look, if they don't want you in Philadelphia, now a year had already gone by, then we want you in in uh in in Washington, DC. And would you be willing to move to Washington, D. C. Whew. So And do I uproot my family? Do I take another chance at this? So for about a year or more, I commuted every day from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C. Car or train? All of the above. Car, train, and bus. (laughs) Car, train, plane, and bus. All of the above. Because I had two young kids. So I'd go up. Do my shift in Washington, drive back, catch a train back, so that I would be home for my kids in the evening. Baseball practice, whatever, uh, you know. Um, and then up in the morning, get in the car, drive to uh, Washington Was this to do my bef- show.
1: Before or after the fly jock? Tom Joyner. Oh,
0: this was during all that time. Tom Joyner was the was the iconic. Tom Joyner was our hero. You know. Well,
1: just for yeah. a second, tell the time, Tom Joyner. Well, the story. Tom Joyner.
0: So he was the fly jock. Where he literally flew. He he was based in Chicago. That's where he started. Had a a, a show in yeah, Dallas. Dallas. Yeah. And every day, he would after his show, he would get on an American Airlines flight and fly. To Dallas to do his Dallas show
1: in the afternoon.
0: In the afternoon, and and uh, and you know it's interesting. I guess after he after he had stopped doing that, American Airlines gave him the his seat. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know that he he did. But can you imagine uh-uh. the mileage? No. Or or how he did it. No. You know, but he was yeah he was Tom joint and he everybody. I mean, Tom. Tom is a, a very, very close friend. Not doing well, I understand, but he, you know, the fly jock, uh, and so I, I, you know, I, you know, but you did what you, you, you had to do. And God, man, it was. Now that I look back on it, it was just. I and I was. I to this day, I'll be honest with you. If I saw the program director, and the owner, of 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 D, WD. They they've since sold the station. I mean, I don't even know if they're still in radio. I, I'd have a hard time forgiving them. I mean, I they just the ones in Philadelphia. The Philadelphia yeah. that was, you know, that was such a an absurd. And but then, I I I when I before I went to Washington at WRC, good people, you know, I was there for a long time, as you know. I think that's how we met and yes. and, and got involved with you guys and SPAN. And but I told the, the the man general manager again they had one black person. Bev Smith. Just a brilliant uh, broadcaster, one of the few African American women.
1: Was that the same Bev Smith who went in the restaurant business?
0: No, oh no 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 no. This was a, Bev Smith was a was out of Pittsburgh. I remember Bernie McCain. And well, Bernie McCain was the person I replaced in Philadelphia. Ah. Uh. Bernie McCain was commuting from Baltimore to do the midnight to 5.30 in Philadelphia. Well, he got tired of that, went to and left and went to Radio 1. I replaced Bernie McCain. And uh, then, of course, Bernie McCain and I ended up working together for Kathy Hughes in Radio 1. But I told the folks uh, uh, and here in Washington, now, if you're recruiting me, to come to WRC uh, I'm not going to come and replace Bev Smith you got more than one white guy so don't get in I'm not buying into this I'm going to be the replacement for 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 her and I think that caught them by surprise
1: let's go to that your personal life married twice yes first Wife,
0: Donnella. Dan- Donnella Crawford, yeah. How long and, were you married to her? Uh, we were married about, uh, I don't know, four or five uh, years. How many children from her? One daughter, uh, Shana, who is, by the way, uh, I was with her just, just recently. She's a broadcaster. Well, you, Matt, you talk about her a lot in your book. Oh, yeah, Shana, Shana when I started doing talk radio, uh, uh, Shana used to screen my uh, caller. Shana, when she was 12 years old. <laughs> her mother, her mother, Donnell, was a, a Northwestern graduate from uh, uh, the journalism school. school. Yeah, and, uh, and just, uh, but we dated through most mm. of high school and and that type of thing. And uh, Shauna uh, was Shauna is a magnificent broadcaster. I mean, she she obviously she 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 got her smarts from her mother, but not <laughs> where, me. But,
1: where is she? Shana? Yeah, where did she broadcast? Uh,
0: uh, she, oh, she's at the... Uh, at the um, oh, Voice me. of America. Voice of America, excuse yeah. me. Just had a brain lock. <laughs> but she's at Voice of America, and she does uh, for English-speaking uh, countries.
1: Go back to when she... How could she screen the calls at she, age
0: 12? Because she's smart. She was, she's smart. <laughs> she could screen calls. She, man, she, she, was, she could literally, she, would, she knew, ex- first of all, she knew the script, <laughs> and, you know, and she would screen the calls, calls would come in, and she, she did that, gee, almost the whole time I was at WXY, the T. She's just smart. She just had her mother's intelligence, and, you know. Second marriage. Was, an, is now 40, what are we, 45 years Photoshop. Sharon, Sherry Sharon, Sharon Moore you, you call her Sherry? Sherry, yeah She's my executive producer How does that work? I mean My being exe- be my executive yeah, producer? I mean,
1: you know, husband and wife working together sometimes
0: Well, first of all that, And here's how it works um, One, she was doing it anyway Because we, <laughs> because, you know We were just, we're, we're the kind of uh, couple We're all, we, we know a lot of the same people we talk politics she reads she watches C-SPAN. she watches the news uh she she was former flight attendant she also uh trained flight attendant she was in management at united she, i think she she retired from united airlines uh and um and but then um but then she she just she just was doing the job anyway I had to I had to get special permission from SiriusXM. Can I hire her to be the executive producer? And SiriusXM said, "Oh, definitely, no, pro- no problem uh, with that at all." So she is in essence she she manages. We have a, a, another young producer, uh, uh, Sam Nassau, who's a uh, uh, was at the, the local NBC station here. We hired him, brilliant young man. Uh, and, uh, and so she, he, the two of them worked closely together. We have an engineer, uh, Daryl Green Jr., who I've been with him over probably, I guess it's been over 12 years because he was my engineer my sitting, technician
1: sitting here you're, right. you're a mild-mannered easy to talk to person that when you're on your show from oh, time God, to time we, we let
0: it loose now but tell me why be it's you know um I don't know why it uh, yes I do <laughs> um it's I I learned something and I'm not name dropping but you know lived, growing up in Detroit I got a lot you know a lot of entertainers and who listened to the show. Um, and Who were some of the biggest? Oh, Aretha Franklin would listen every day. Rosa Parks would listen every day. Uh, uh, the Four Tops, Smokey Robbins, I mean, you know, uh, Lim Barney, I mean, that, you know, uh, Dave Bing, who became mayor. I mean, these were you know, my, my my running buddies, these were guys and, and folks we would, we just would talk because we were, we, we all were sort of in the entertainment business.
1: Okay, before we go on, what was Aretha Franklin like?
0: Oh, Aretha Franklin was a committed civil rights activist who was very supportive, but I knew her father before I knew her. Reverend C. L. Franklin, because he was the iconic civil rights pastor. Before there was a Jesse Jackson, uh, uh, Al Sharpton, there was C. L. Franklin. And when I they did a documentary when he was oh yeah, they've done several. But when I first came to Detroit, and I became the executive director of the NACP, man, he called me into his office and and sat me down and said, young man. Let me tell you about these people. <laughs> and he, I'm serious. That was, and let me tell you, you, this person you can't trust, that person you can't trust, this person's okay, and oh, it was like, you know, that was the baptism of fire. What about
1: Rosa Parks?
0: Rosa Parks, I met Rosa Parks uh, John going to John Conyers' office for, for some issue. I walk in the door, and she's the receptionist. And I look over, and I said... That's Rosa Parks, and she listened to the show, Mr. Madison, because she always said Mr. Madison. I, I listened to your show. I really like you, and da da da. Very quiet. We never got in any long conversation. Um, and and in the book, I talk about how we got together and boycotted the city of Dearborn. Tell the story. Oh God. City, yeah, but, by the way, Dearborn's how far from Detroit? As far as we are from each other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah across the street. Yep. You know, it's a, it, across the street. Now, this is when Dearborn was Henry Ford's uh, headquarters of Ford Motor Company, less than 1% African American, what we would refer to in those days as a sunset town, Don and Sunset Town. If you were white, I mean, if you were black, you had to be out. By sunset, or couldn't go in before. Is that was that legal? No, no, nothing. And see, in the north, we didn't have, we didn't have this codified stuff. This was, this was, this was. Uh, what would they say? The lawyers would say this was de facto. Well, you just had to leave because you'd be in trouble there. Oh, or? you would be stopped by police. What are you doing here? You know, you're black. What are you doing in town? What's, what's, and you'd be pulled over. And this was the history of Dearborn. Did this happen to you personally? No, it never happened okay. to me. Didn't spend, I never went to Dearborn for anything, except to go to their shopping mall. They had this huge regional shopping mall. And black folks flowed into that shopping mall, Brian. And so what happened was a a black family went across the street to the city park, And apparently, took was in a uh, like a lunch. I mean, a picnic area, picnic shelter. A family from Dearborn, a white family from Dearborn, told them they couldn't use it because they weren't residents of Dearborn. Now, how did they know that? Because they were black. And in essence, so they that white family went to the city council, went to the mayor, got an ordinance passed. That said, if you are not a resident of Dearborn, you could not use their city parks. Well, it got into the newspapers. And I walk in. So I'm going, I, I'm, I'm going to John Conyers' office. There was a, a, a friend, Art Featherstone, who was an aide to John Conyers. And he was a rabble rouser. And he was from Missis- Sunflower, Mississippi. And he said, Madison, we got to do something about this. And Rosa Parks sitting there very quietly listening. We got to do something. We can't let this stand. Um, well, what do you want to do? Let's, we got to boycott Dearborn. Oh, okay. So you know, I'm thinking, okay, well, let's let's do it. And then and then Mrs. Parks said, "I'll help you." Oh, Rosa Parks. Well, fine. Let's go for it. And and so we j It was just the two of us. Uh, three of us, are our, our Featherstone, Rosa Parks, myself. And so we decided to announce that we're going to boycott all businesses in the city of Dearborn. If we can't play in your parks, we're not going to pay in your stores. So we arranged to announce the boycott on Thanksgiving Day, because it's a slow news day. And... Um, the next day, it's in the newspapers. There was a spontaneous response. And folks, and remember now, the next day was shopping. This is like, what do they call it? Uh, is it I, Black, Black Friday. Black, Black Friday. <laughs> and folks just, okay, fine, we're not going. Henry Ford picked up the phone and called... This is Henry Ford II. Henry Ford II. The second? Yeah, yeah. Henry Hank. Henry, right, Henry, Henry, Henry Ford. I don't know him. Didn't know him. Never met him. And he called every... He called Cohen Young, who was mayor. Black mayor. At first black mayor. And he called... Ev- and, and they started... And he must have called every black, older black leader he knew. Now, I'm, once again, I'm in my 20s. I'm... I... All hell broke loose. And to make into and, and, and I was pressured to call off the boycott. To call off the boycott. I wouldn't do it. And I tell the story of called into a Saturday, <laughs> a Saturday morning breakfast meeting, which was sort of like a, I, I call it today a kitchen cabinet for Coleman Young. There was a federal, and I'm not mentioning names because these guys are all gone now, and they can't defend themselves. But they couldn't; they would, couldn't deny it. And there was a federal judge, there was like the uh, uh, former superintendent of the public schools, a major labor leader, vice president of the UAW, who, be, and all these folks later became admirers of mine, and Coleman Young. And they would meet, and it was, I always remember it was, they'd have scrambled eggs and bourbon. And these are older guys, and you know, leaders, been through hell. And they said, you will call off this boycott. No, I'm not. No, you will call it off. Uh, you got Henry Ford calling all of us. And, and, uh, and, and, and then Coleman Young said, um, you didn't get my permission to call a boycott. And I said, uh, Mr. Mayor, with all due respect, I don't need your permission to call a boycott. And he looked at me and I, and he said, young man, you need my permission to fart in this city. Whoa okay <laughs> I'm, that's, I mean that's how it got to the point man I was called into that, uh, and and to this day I will always be thankful they called Ben Hooks he was CEO of the NACP so we had another meeting and I can see it today it was at this church Hartford Avenue Baptist Church the pre, and it was the church of the local president because remember I was a, a political director and but I was based in Detroit, and um, almost the same there was a different group of people, and they they had this it here were the pews. It was no one in the church but but a group of us, probably five or six folk and Ben Hooks and I walked in together. Ben, we want him out of town. I don't care where you take him, but we want you move him to New York but get him out of town. We want him out of town. Now, what's this all about? It's this boycott. He won't call it off. I said, you can't call it off. It's already started. And Ben listened and listened, and he said, no, gentlemen, let me, he didn't gentlemen, but guys, let me tell you something. And this is bare knuckle. When you talk about what, when you ask the question, what do black folk talk about when, when white folks aren't around? They curse each other out. Uh, You know, but they and he and he said, now, let me let me let me say something to you guys. Um, I've been in boycotts and with King and and all and and the likes. uh, And I know I know one thing that successful boycotts are either well organized or they're spontaneous. I know this wasn't well organized because y'all didn't help him. This was spontaneous, and I'm not taking him anywhere. Joe, come on. We're leaving. And we got up, walked out. How much
1: did Rosa Parks know how important she
0: was to the civil rights issue? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm look. I mean, here, how did she carry herself? She. Oh, oh, Rosa Parks carried herself with grace she was quiet um very supportive you know in the book uh when i decided to run for president of the detroit nacp well that was a big mistake and i made rose and i had rosa parks as my vice president we were on a, she she agreed to be the vice president and we in it was major campaign uh they defeated us they defeated us uh, but to give you an example, all the older men, oh, Rosa Parks is too old to be vice president of the uh, NACP in Detroit. Oh, she's too old. You know, she's frail. Well, she was, Please, Rosa Parks was a whirlwind, but very quiet, very quiet. And they, they, they went to her. You should, you should get off the ticket. You shouldn't run with him. And uh, she refused to do it. She refused to do it. She refused to do it, Brian. And um, uh, I, it, that, But see people, and, and this is something young people contemporary ought to know. most people, by 1965, had forgotten about Rosa Parks. I bet you you can go back and see-Span files and hear a speech that Dr. King gave in reference to the Voting Rights Act, and in it you'll hear him say, you know, uh, Montgomery, Alabama, long time ago, and we've almost forgotten about this woman named Rosa Parks. People would not... Rosa Parks had to, was forced out of Alabama. That's how she ended up working for, uh, for John Conyers but uh couldn't get a job and that's and and, and most folks had and, and I'm telling you from 1965 up until uh you know for, for up until a point in time that folks in Detroit there was a, a couple named Louise uh, the, a woman named Louise taps who, who was UAW wife in UAW uh husband organizer and they took Rosa Parks when she came to Detroit under their wing Most folks did not know, had forgotten about Rosa Parks. I know it's hard for people to understand that now. But most folks, I'm telling you, by 1965. And I really didn't realize it until, again, being in Detroit, this baptism of fire that I was going through as a young man. And these older folks would pull me aside and say, Joe, we didn't talk about Rosa Parks. We had forgotten about Rosa Parks. And then Louise Tapps resurrected Rosa Parks. Louise Tapps died. And then Elaine Steele uh, took over where Louise Taps and 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 they resurrected Rosa Parks. Did the
1: Dearborn boycott
0: work? Oh, did it work? Yes, the as, because it was spontaneous. Oh man, the matter of fact, it, like the, uh, Fairlane Manor was the shopping mall, and they, they they that's what that's what really pissed. Look, if it didn't work, Henry Ford wouldn't have picked up the phone. That's when I knew it worked, and and what was his position? Oh, stop it! This is my town, this is Dearborn, this is Ford Country. Who in the hell are you folks? Who is this Joe Madison? You what? I mean, who is he? That's why they 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 he called you know the folks and and Coleman Young's position was I'm tr- they're trying to build the Renaissance Center. Which was Ford at the time? We got these businesses. The UAW. I even had the UAW go after me. Uh, uh, the the uh, yeah. president of there's a big local out in because of Ford factory, and the the president. I, I was called into a meeting with him and some labor leaders, and uh, you know how dare this is. Uh, this is UAW, I forget the, the uh, one or something, and uh, you know this is, and you didn't get our permission, you know. I, so my members are supposed to not boy boycott this city where they work. That's right. We can I don't even want them buying gas in the, I want them right. You know, they, all they could do is cross the street in there and back in Detroit. And he was a young white guy who eventually became the president of the UAW. His last name was King. But he was president of a predominantly black U.A.W. local hmm. and had the audacity to tell me, well, you know, this is the, you just don't know what you're doing. I said, well, the day that you turn black and, and get thrown out of a park, you can talk to me that way. No, I'm not calling off the boycott. Let's go back to radio for a
1: moment. OK. What works how do you keep an audience? You have to sell advertising? There
0: must be a trick and you have to sell subscriptions, yeah, on serious exit yeah yeah here's my here's what I was told again in in these conversations, private conversations, personal you know non you know conversations just among uh, I would always ask these very successful friends of mine. Why are you, what makes you successful and we talk this way and Aretha Frank I'll go back to what I said she said you know you know Joe there's, there's, there's three things that, I, that you ought to that I appreciate about your show one you're original nobody does what you do two you're authentic I know it's you I mean, that you are authentic. You're not, put, there's no put-ons. When you're angry, you're angry. Or when you laugh, it's a, it's a belly, it's a laugh. When you're sad, we feel you. And then she said, the other thing is you're daring. And I've always remembered that. You have to be authentic because the voice doesn't lie. You have to be original. I don't want to be like anybody else. I don't want to be like uh, uh, the fly jock. There's only one fly jock. I don't want to be like uh, anybody. I have to be, uh, and that's what Aretha used to say. Look, look, Joe, when you hear me, you know it's Aretha. (laughs) And she used to say that. You know it's me. I don't sound like Gladys. I don't sound like uh, Diane Ross. I'm Aretha. And and then you have to be daring, and that's where you either make it or get fired. <laughs> what, what's the
1: most daring thing you've done since oh, you've been at Sirius XM?
0: Oh, the most um, going to South Sudan, Southern Sudan. Uh, why, back, were
1: you, why were you there?
0: Because there had been a 25 years civil war, as you well know, Darfur, South Sudan. Uh, I was a a Christian organization out of Switzerland came to me and said, would you please talk about what's going on in South Sudan with women and children being taken slaves? And we can't seem to we we got we can't break through to the black community. And if you're willing, we'll take you to South Sudan so you can see for yourself. Now, we can't tell anybody you're going because, uh, because the, the uh, Sudanese government uh, they're at war with the, the rebels in southern Sudan. It was before it was a country, and your life will be in danger. Uh, we've got to be very clandestine about this. You can, you can talk about it when you come back, but we cannot tell folks you're going. And so I decided to, once again, uh, do, uh, use my platform, and I went. And what I saw just brought me to, to tears. Uh, I, I mean, just hundreds, thousands of women. Uh, I, I was telling someone, uh, and, and I went back like six times. And my wife went with me. Did, Sherry went with me. Did you go live out of there? Ever ever you mean broadcast yes. live no no we 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 weren't capable in those days we didn't have the ability we taped a lot um but i I don't think we ever went live uh uh and and but I can tell you the just the just to see these women and children and here's what we did. I would come back. Tell everybody, this was before George Clooney got involved, with years before he got involved. But thank God he did, because he brought that, you know, what he used to say, that celebrity credit card uh, with him. And, um, I mean, we documented the horrific things that these women and children went through. A goat, and I write about this in a book, a goat costs more than a, a, a child or a woman. I think, and, and and we documented these horror stories. I met a young girl, I don't know, 13, 14 years old, I don't remember her age, and she was forced to have a baby, because the women would be raped, and they would take care of the cattle sometimes, and she she was forced to have her baby in a, 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 a cattle pen. Uh, I met, a, a, a. we had to interview a young girl who was forced to have sex with her brother while they watched, while these while these uh, Sudanese folks watched. And we had to interview her away from the other uh, villagers because she would be ostracized. And you could see them, just the, the mental anguish that she had gone through uh uh I met John Garang who lost his life he was sort of the the George Washington of the South Sudanese movement uh I thought one of the most decent men I had met in south uh, in South Sudan um and we went came I came back home and began raising doing two things raising money to buy slaves so we would raise money, take transfer it into Sudanese money, which would be a, you know, damn near cargo carrier money, and we would buy slaves, and and then bring them back to their villages where they had been taken away from. I met uh, I met two men whose wives had been taken slaves. And these two men actually tracked where their wives were going, and they tracked them. They got caught by the Sudanese, and their arms were chopped off after they were captured. And, uh, and they—I mean, how do I put—they couldn't—you know, they had to have help relieving themselves. And then with that, I'm on the air. I'm talking about this. Then I decided, and this is where the title comes from, uh, in the street, and and, and is that we decided, fine, then we're going to hold demonstrations in front of the Sudan embassy. And every periodic at noon, at noon, to draw attention to this, to get Congress involved. Um, You remember Donald Payne? Mm-hmm. Congressman Donald Payne was Mister Africa.
1: And his son's there now.
0: His son is there now, and Donald Payne, Donald Payne, Charlie Rangel, John Lewis, uh, Ben and Jerry, um, uh, and uh, I mean the all and, and f- they started coming and we would get arrested. Walter Fontroy, we would get arrested in front of the Desen- Sudan Embassy and we'd handcuff. Ourselves to the door of the sedan embassy here in town here in town over nice on thing. on Massachusetts mm-hmm. little bit of embassy, and we'd go to jail then the next time we'd come back uh and and so my listeners started showing up and while people would walk up to the door, the folks would be picketing outside, they'd handcuff themselves to the embassy, secret service would show up and put them in a police transport and take us to jail. And we did that for we did that for uh for just weeks. And um and then uh but we were able to raise enough money to fr- I think we calculated, this the folks from Christian Solidarity International said we probably freed over seven thousand slaves. Mm. And then it got down to it got down to is this genocide that's going on, and trying to get the administration to declare it genocide. I think it was the Bush administration, and there was this hesitant to get Congress to declare. So I, I, Walter Farnshaw and I get summoned to the Secretary of State's office by his, what was Colonel? I can't think of his administrative assistant. was with him for Wilkinson. years. Wilkinson. 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 And he, he, he summons us to the uh, State Department. This was Colin Powell when he was secretary. This was President. Colin Powell. Yeah. And, and I take it this was back we never Colin Powell never talked to us directly. And, he, you know, we've been watching what you're doing, da-da-da-da, and in essence, keep doing it. Just keep doing it. Okay. All right. So I'm assuming that was direction... See, the two of us know how there's a lot of back-channeling that goes on in Washington. So we we kept demonstrating, kept doing this. And then Colin Powell declared it was genocide that was going on in southern Sudan. Fast forward, the the southern Sudan becomes a country, youngest country on the continent of Africa. I get invited to the flag-raising I, what an event! I've never been to one. What an experience! Here's all the here's you know all the world leaders, this new country, all this promise, and 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 so we're at this event, and and I and I'm recording different people to bring back to the show. And Colin Powell's inside, you know, doing whatever reception. I said, I wonder if I can get Colin Powell to come out and. Do an interview, and so uh, my again, my wife, executive producer, goes in, and Colin, brings Colin Powell out. He comes outside, and oh yeah, Joe, Joe Mass, yeah, yeah, and there's a photograph, and it, there's just this this expression between the two of them, and he says, Joseph, Joe, now I want you to tell everybody I was the first to call it genocide. Now you tell your audience that, and we have that. We have that uh, that recording.
1: In your book, you tell us a lot about your health problems. Yeah, prostate cancer, Wait. diabetes. I remember you. You spoke to a bunch of students that we had. You were two hundred seventy-five pounds.
0: I was almost three hundred pounds. That's right. Yeah. You're now one hundred eighty. Oh, he's yeah, about one one seventy-nine, hundred and eighty. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm half the person I was. Yeah. And, and,
1: and what did I miss in, in your health? Because you tell us all this in the book.
0: Well, what happened, what, what happened was um, uh, our, our radio doctor, Dr. Gabe Merkin, uh, you know, was on radio for years here at WRC. So he was our, our primary physician, my wife and I's primary physician. She was going for an examination. He just came out to say hello, that's all. And he looked at me. And he and he said, "You're not leaving here until I give you a physical." And I can tell you now, before we get the results, I guarantee you, you got high blood pressure, you got type two diabetes, and uh, and a bunch of comorbidities. And so so and so, I go in the back, blood test, pressure data, you know, you name it. He does the whole nine yards. And then he, he tells me, he says, now, I don't care how you do it, but uh, if you don't get that weight off of you, you're going to drop dead, and nobody will know why. So I don't care how you do it, but that's what's going to happen. What year would this have been? Oh, I can't remember. I'm terrible. 20 years ago? Oh, no, not that long ago. Not that, oh, no, not. I don't think so. I don't think so. Um... And I know we sort of pass each other all the time. But I, I just don't remember. I, you know, I'd have to look and, and think about it. My wife is very good at the, she knows those dates. And, um, and so he said that, um, he said, and, and the problem is it's environmental. What does that mean? I'm, I'm thinking environmental trees, that kind of <laughs> thing. He says, no, you're doing it to yourself. That's what, you're doing it to yourself. And so the so I decided Jesse Jackson Jr. If you remember was very overweight too, and he had uh, he took he got a, a, a surgery. So uh, I so I went to him and asked him what kind of surgery, and so it was a duodenal switch, which was was something I had learned, and I and again because I have the show. I could bring all these doctors in, I, and I was really doing it for myself. But my audience was learning too, and that's when I decided to have weight loss surgery. But what a lot of people don't know, you have to go through all these tests, sleep apnea. You have to take us, a, a, you know, you know what's, you know, what's your, you know, are you a sweet? Do you love sweets? Do you love meat? Do you, you have, to, and then you have to go through weight. Effort to we- lose weight, they just don't automatically do it. And uh, but and here was the other issue. And again, I used the show. Insurance company wouldn't pay for my procedure. This is not lap band. Oh no, because lap band. I, I I knew that that wasn't going to work. No, this because they had all these different. This was reducing the size of your stomach, reducing the size of. Don't and please don't get me going through all this medical stuff, but reducing the, you know, the, uh, and shrink, uh, uh, shortening the intestines so that you, uh, you don't absorb calories. Uh, and, and, but it, w- it worked for me. Um, so I went through the procedure. The fight was to get the insurance companies to pay for it. How would you get it done? Oh, raising holy hell. You keep talking about why do I raise hell on the radio. I mean raise... Matter of fact, my wife raised more hell than I did. She was the one who was getting ready to pick it. This was Aetna? Yes. This was... Yeah, this was Aetna. And and all they weren't going to do... Got the doctors involved. Kathy... I I was with Radio 1. Kathy Hughes got involved. And we had to fight. I mean, really fight. We finally got them to agree. And then... Medicare agreed. Now once Medicare and Etna, it was et, Medicare agreed then the insurance companies agreed. How
1: did were
0: you 65? I don't know. I mean how did Medi- Medicare is you
1: have to be 65. Right? Yeah, I,
0: but there were there were other people who I, I mean I was I was not doing oh, this I see just for saying yeah, yeah.
1: Medicare I, agreed to do other people. Right. I and, mean at, and you know this got, wasn't got, just for
0: it. me. I mean there were at, at this I mean I was fighting for a bunch of folk who were, who were, you know, calling and saying, "Oh man, they turned me down too, Mr. Madison." And we were on the radio talking to these people, and damn that Aetna, and 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 darn it, and it keep. But you know, it was it was, and again, radio activism, and then eventually it it turned. How fast did you lose weight? I let, let me uh, let me tell you that here's what happened after my procedure the doctor came in and said okay you are now diabetes free you will never have diabetes again um your blood pressure is normalizing uh it's again it's not a magic bullet uh you can pretty much eat what you you want but you got to be reasonable so i went from 275 79 Pounds down to. I weighed. them I I lost the same. I, I I got down to the same weight I was when I was a high school football player. <laughs> I was I was I have a photograph, and then Ebony magazine uh, did a, uh, a a feature because the editor of Ebony went through weight loss procedure. Uh, 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 oh, and I know Jesse Jackson's uh, sister. Went through a weight loss. Jesse
1: Jackson Jr. Jr. And,
0: and, and Jesse Jackson's daughter, but his sister went through. She was having serious problems, and and with, with weight too. But they did a, a and and that thing. And Muhammad Ali's daughter. And there's a in Ebony magazine article about all of us and this whole what was the best procedure for African Americans and da 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 that type of thing, um, and. Uh, <laughs> I have this photograph that the ebony photographer took where, and Dick Gregory taught me this. He said, get one uh, wardrobe, one jacket or pair of pants when you were your heaviest and keep it in the closet to always remind you, Brian, of, of, of your weight. And there's this photograph of a tuxedo jacket where Sherry was pressed against me and I could literally button the tuxedo jacket with the two of us in it. we got to wrap this
1: up. And the last question oh, really? for you. Yeah, I know. Oh, what's the main thing that you want uh, your listeners, people who know you, to remember about you?
0: Um, that... Uh, not where I started. Not that two-year-old that was abandoned by uh, a mother or a father, because I don't know why. Uh, not uh, it's not where you start. I, I write in the book how how I would spend my summers because my grandfather was was a trash hauler. Today he would be in waste management, and if I was smart, I would have gotten in that business. Yeah. Yeah, he, 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 he. We called in those days a dump master. He, we, and in those days we called it a dump, but it was a land. Today it's a landfill. I'd spend my summers. People don't know that watching, seeing me on TV. That you know, I would spend my summers on a dump, pulling out rags. Metal, paper, and that—that's how we 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 made money to survive and live. We didn't talk about surviving. I mean, you know, I I never really thought I was poor because everybody around us was trying to do was working in a factory or doing the same thing. That I that I went from working as a young teenager on or a kid. On a dump to ending up interviewing the first African American president of the United States in the Oval Office at his request. So it's not where you start; it's the journey, and it, that, that's how I have, why I, I, wrote the, I wrote the book. And thank and 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 that uh, that I'm when they hear me um, you know that first of all I'm original uh I'm authentic and and yeah i'm I've hung around a lot of people that have been far more daring than I have.
1: <laughs> the name of the book is radioactive. A memoir of advocacy and action on the air and in the streets. Joe Madison can be found on Sirius XM Radio Channel
0: One Twenty Six, uh, Urban View Channel. It's Urban View. Yeah. Thank you, Joe Madison. No, man, we have been friends, you know, for so. I, this is the two Midwesterners. <laughs> I always we always laugh about that, but you, you've been. I, I can I, and I say this close, sincerely and closing. I consider you. Since I consider you an original uh, and 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 look what you've done with C-SPAN. It, it, nobody's ever. How dare you put C-SPAN together? Jim, and, thanks. And I'm, you're authentic.
1: It's not about me. It's about you. Thank you so oh, much. Thank you. man. Thank you.
0: Love you much. Yeah.